News Power Hour. Yeah, it's the 29th of July, 2021. That means it's Thursday. That means for us, it's the last episode of the Business Power Hour for the week. Remember, on a Friday, we have on FMR Carrie's Corner uh, on High FM. Uh, we do not broadcast. And of course, uh, we also have on businessradio.com Carrie's Corner, which comes through. So that's the uh, the last of the week. And what a week it's been. And we're going to have a lot more information for you tonight. I'm Alec Hogg here with my colleagues from business.com. Just to give you a taste of what's coming up. Uh, the big story of the week, undoubtedly for South Africans, in fact, for people all over the world, has been what went on in China, a plunge in the China's tech stocks. South Africa's biggest shares are NASPAS and Process, which are uh, associated companies, and their value is determined by Tencent, which is listed in Hong Kong, which took an awful hiding this week. It bounced back this morning in Hong Kong, but it's uh, only recovered about one-third of the ground that was lost. We go into some depth in this story tonight with Sean Pesh. He is with Ranmore. Uh, he's based offshore in London, and he's been warning for a long time now that Naspers was overvalued and that the risk associated with investing in China was not being taken fully into account. Um, and we'll be finding out from him what he thinks about what happened in the past week. Similarly with Pete Fulion, this being Thursday, Pete is our um, man who gives us an assessment of what's been going on in the marketplace, just to give us some perspective on it. We've got a big story breaking tonight. Uh, they're keeping it low profile. It's it's Altfest. It's a, a new way of investing. If you consider the way the rich invest, invest nowadays, they get given the first bite at cherries like Facebook, even Tencent, which uh, was made available to NicePass, which put $30 million into it in, the, I think it was in 1999. But a lot of these early stage investments, these exponential companies, only go to the high net worth individuals. Altvest is going to make that available to everybody in South Africa, and you can put in 100 bucks and have a have a go, a go at it. We are a, a partner in the whole of Altvest. We'll be promoting it to our business community so that the business community can become, uh, can participate in this. And indeed, members of the business community can even list their companies or horses or whatever assets they want to put onto it. It really is an exciting development. And we'll be talking to Rob Hershoff, uh, Kashik Karan, and uh, Warren Wheatley, Warren is the, is the, is the brains behind Altfest on exactly how it works. That's a, a goodie coming up. And then we'll be finding out from Francois Nourkia, uh, who is the developer of the port of Gauteng, all about Transnet. It's not a pretty picture, but it is one that we need to know as we close off the show tonight with our, uh, colleagues, our partners in London at the Financial Times with their usual update on what's been going on in the news. And now with the Chinese tech uh, stocks out of favor, it appears as though the Indian tech stocks are the ones that are going to be picking up uh, or taking up the baton from there. Lots coming up. You can stay with us here on the Business Power Hour. Bright Rock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs meshed life insurance that changes as your life changes. Well, as always, we start off with the news headlines and uh, Business Nadia Swat has got all of those. Nadia? South African Finance Minister Tito Mbuweni affirmed his commitment to reigning in debt and con amid concerns that the coronavirus pandemic and a week of deadly riots will further erode the state's already shaky finances. In an interview, Mbuweni said that we are not going to go to a sovereign debt crisis for now, at least not under my watch, despite opposition to spending constraints. Public finances rapidly deteriorated over the past decade as loss-making state-owned companies, including ESCOM and SAA, received a series of bailouts, and the government repeatedly failed to contain its wage bill or tackle graft. South Africa's port and rail company appears to have been targeted with a strain of ransomware that cybersecurity experts have linked to a series of high-profile data breaches 
likely carried out by crime gangs from Eastern Europe and Russia. The hackers left a ransom note on Transnet's computers seen by Bloomberg News, claiming that they encrypted the company's files, including a terabyte of personal data, financial reports, and other documents. The note instructed the firm to visit a chat portal on the dark web to enter negotiations. The cyber attack on July 22nd caused the company to declare force majeure at container terminals and switch to manual processing of cargo. Transnet's Durban port alone handles more than half of the nation's shipments and is the main gateway for other commodity exporters, including the Democratic Republic of Congo and Zambia. President Cyril Ramaphosa has authorized the use of almost 1,500 members of the military to help neighbor Mozambique fight an Islamic state-linked insurgency, Parliament said on Wednesday. The use of the SANDF comes as regional bloc Southern African Development Community in June approved the deployment of troops to Mozambique to combat a conflict that began in 2017 and has killed thousands. Ramaphosa said the South African National Defence Force personnel would be used between July 15th and October 15th at an expected cost of 984 million rand. Justin Rowe Roberts has got the market report. Justin? The JSE All Share Index was up at 69,500. In the currency markets, the rand strengthened against all the major currencies to 14 rand 59 cents to the dollar, 20 rand and 38 cents to the pound, and 17 rand 35 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,824 an ounce. A Kruger Rand will cost you around 28,500 Rand. Brent crude is flat at $75.50 a barrel, and the Bitcoin price is lower at 580,000 Rand per coin. Imperial Logistics has entered into agreement to purchase 100% of the issued share capital of the J&J Group for an enterprise value of 4.4 billion Rand. The J&J Group offers end-to-end logistics solutions along the Beira and North-South Corridor specializing in the transports of brake bulk, containerized project fuel, and out-of-gauge cargo between Mozambique, Zimbabwe, Zambia, South Africa, Malawi, and the DRC. Imperial, which is subject to a buyout offer from Dubai-based DP World, Imperial shares were slightly in the green on the JSE today. Diversified diversified mining giant Anglo-American banked $12.1 billion in earnings in the first half of 2021, reaping the rewards of the current commodity price boom. The company said the earnings were driven by strong market demand and operational resilience, with profit to shareholders hitting $5.2 billion. During the period to end of June, basic headline earnings per share rose to $4.22 per share. Chief Executive Mark Cadafani said that the first six months of 2021 have been strong demand and prices for many of our products as economies begin to recoup lost ground, spurred by stimulus measures across the major economies. This market report was made just for you by Bradrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Sean Pesh has been guiding us, advising us, telling us to watch out for China. Well, my goodness, uh, Sean, if you had a crystal ball... Uh, it certainly is one that you'd be wanting to consult continuously, given what happened in the last few weeks. There are a couple of issues, and maybe we start with the broader one. Uh, it, it appears now that those fears that, that you have articulated about China being a communist country and uh, really attacking the capitalists there has accelerated beyond what anybody anticipated. Alec, I think that's right. And I think, but I think, I do think in fairness to the Chinese government, you know, they have 1.4 billion people to look after. And so that has to take precedence and they need to make sure that those people are housed, employed, fed, um, et cetera. And, and so that is their primary concern. And it just means that foreign shareholders are way down the list. And I think you, what we've seen recently is that they're able to take very, given the structure of the, the government, they're able to take very decisive action. And I think South Africa could have learned from that, you know, given what we've seen in, in recent weeks. So I think they're just acting to support and uh, their population. And it just means that foreign shareholders get caught in the crossfire. Um, and I think, uh, you know, the, the, I mean, I'm just delighted I'm not managing money in South Africa because I've been talking about these risks for many years and I probably wouldn't have had a job. You know, I'd be out of a job. So, so sometimes these things happen. But, but the question is obviously is what, what about now? 
what now? Because I, yeah. Before we go there, though, this VIE structure, just just repeat it again, because right, uh, must be a year ago, you were you were telling us about the VIE ownership structure. I see last night our partners at the Financial Times. We run a a, a little uh, podcast from them in our uh, in our program every evening. Uh, they focused on it, and uh, their correspondent was saying the VIE structure is illegal in China. Uh, it's a big big risk, which only now seems to be uh, focused on. In the past, I, I was a NASPAS shareholder, and I'd said, oh, no, come on, Sean, uh, surely they're not going to do anything silly about it. Well, hello. Well, yeah, actually, I wrote about it in 2018. Um, and I remember that's when we first discussed it. It's amazing how quickly time passes. And, and essentially what it means is that foreign shareholders can't own direct stakes in Chinese companies. That's for Chinese uh, people, and especially not in telecoms and sensitive IT-related issues. And so what the companies do then is they, they have a Cayman Islands company, which they set up. This is, this is the norm. And that Cayman Islands company has a contract with the Chinese company. And, but the shares in the Chinese company, the actual operating entity, are owned in typically the founder's hands, okay? Which begs the question, what happens if one of them dies? Uh, and, and that's obviously a big risk. But, and, and in fact, in, in one of the recent, um, I think it was the DD, uh, 10 uh, prospectus, they talk about one of the, one of the founders getting divorced. And then what happens to the shares in the underlying company? So they're all these contracts. So it, it really is a real issue. And, and so all that the Cayman Islands company has is a contract. And that contract, as 10 cents have written about in the annual report and Alibaba in their annual reports, et cetera, is um, is basically you know at the whims of the Chinese government, and there's there's advice as to whether it's sustainable or not. And so you know it's one of those risks that you see that hasn't manifested itself, but you could wake up tomorrow and it is a problem. Mm. It, in other words, if the Chinese government decides that it really wants to um, put down the jackboot on a capitalist uh, like Jack Ma, who might have been uh, criticising them, they could simply outlaw that VIE structure, and foreign shareholders would left with nothing. Sure. Uh, the, I mean, what they do do is they trap the cash in China. So I'm not sure that they would do that, um, but they do trap the cash in China. And so if you read the, the notes in 10 cents annual accounts, most of the cash is trapped. So all the profits are sit in China and they can't, because of exchange control, pay them out to the, the Cayman Islands uh, company anyway. And that's why many of these Chinese companies don't do share buybacks. Or if they do do share buybacks, it's, it's they're poultry because there's so little cash outside the system. So in reality, um, it's, uh, you know, nothing really has changed because all cash is sitting in China. The shareholders are owned in China. Um, and it's just that, um, you know, I mean, if foreign shareholders don't really own anything, to be honest. But NicePass did get $10 billion for two percentage points of 10 yep, cents. They sold their 10, they sold their 10 cent shares, which is the Hong Kong entity. So, so it's a Hong Kong listing. Of a chi- of a Cayman Islands company, so it's not they didn't sell the underlying shares in the Chinese entity. It's the it's the Cayman Islands entity, which is listed in Hong Kong. But the Cayman Islands entity is only has a contract with the actual ten cent in China. That's actually quite concerning. So you what you buying into when you buy shares in Hong Kong on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange in these companies is not the company itself, but in a Cayman Islands entity, which uh, then has a contract with the company. And if the government of China were to say that it no longer uh, regards that contract as legal, which is what was being, has been suggested quite a lot, then where is your security? Well, no, there isn't any. And in fact, you can't even rely on corporate governance in, in the Cayman Islands because I think I'm right in saying, well, certainly up to a couple of years ago, Baidu'd never held an gen- annual general meeting. So, you know, I mean, it really is you just buying hope. So that's the worry. But I don't think, I mean, let's not get too, you know, scary about this because that's a, it's, look, it's a risk. But, but if I were the, you know, I mean, let's, if, if I were one of these CEOs, I, and I'm sure they've had these discussions, I'd sit down with the, the Chinese government and I'd say, look, let's actually look at what's happening here. We've got a profitable 
uh, we've got a profitable gaming company. We take those profits. We don't have to pay those foreign shareholders. We take those profits and we invest in startups. And those startups create jobs. And then what we do is we then go and list those startups overseas to all the gullible investors who, you know, think that there's a lot of growth and want to give us a lot of money. And, and essentially what's happening is the foreign investors are funding the losses in these Chinese companies, but it's creating employment for China. I mean, you look at something like Moitong, you know, that thing loses money. It's the largest food delivery business in the world. It's worth even now $270 billion or something, but it loses money. And, and now the government is saying, well, hang on, Moitong, you need to pay your drivers a minimum wage. And so who's funding those losses? Well, the foreign shareholders are funding the losses. So it's actually the foreign shareholders are funding jobs in China. So, you know, does China really want to let the music stop? Probably not. So this meeting, this meeting last night, uh, the secret meeting between the authorities in China and uh, Wall Street banks, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs, etc. On the one hand, it is insider trading, undoubtedly, because we've seen what's happened to the share prices. But leave that aside for the moment. On the other hand, is this part of not letting the music Probably. stop? I mean, in reality, are they going to backpedal and say, don't worry, you don't have to pay a minimum wage. Don't worry. Tencent music, you can keep going with your exclusive contracts. No way. They're not going to do that. They just, they just want to try and calm the waters at the moment, I would guess. That would be my best. So why would, why would the Wall Street banks pile into Hong Kong shares uh, as a consequence of that meeting? What might they have been told which would change well, I mean, their mind? The shares haven't recovered. I mean, they've recovered what? They haven't gone back to where they were. Yeah, a third of their losses. So, and remember, that there's an int- you know, those Hong Kong banks and the Goldman Sachs and those guys have made an absolute fortune from listing all these entities in, in the States and, uh, and from raising debt for the likes of Tencent. I mean, Tencent's got, what, 40-something 40 40 billion dollars of debt. Um, and and so, so there's an incentive for them to do that. And there's an incentive for the, the Chinese uh, government to, to keep the music going, but only if it's not at the expense of their citizens. And I think that's the important point here, you know, in that if you are making a lot of money in China and you're exploiting the citizens, as we've seen with this education situation, it's not going to be tolerated. And, and, and that's a problem. You know, it's, a, it's a problem for foreign shareholders uh, because all of a sudden you know, the growth that you foresaw maybe isn't there. And you could wake up tomorrow and they've changed the gaming. I mean, a few years ago, they remember they said, there were limits in terms of how old the person was and how many hours they could spend in front of the computers playing games. And again, that's just looking after their population. So I can't criticize the Chinese government for doing what's best for their population. That's what governments are there for. Um, but I think as foreign shareholders, you just need to know that you're not first in line. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Well, it's Thursday. That means Pit Fulun is our man to give us perspective on what's going on around the world and what a week it's been, Pit. Cheapest. I mean, three weeks ago, we were talking about looting and riots in South Africa. Now, many investors would believe it's looting of uh, foreign investors by China. It's been an extraordinary week. I know you've been negative on NASPAS and congratulations to you. I finally got it out of the business portfolio this week, uh, but... <laughs> Uh, at at uh, I think we held it for two years and we made eight percent, uh, eight which is yeah okay so you know not not a complete disaster there's, there's, but there's there others the property stocks that did better than that. <laughs> there's even cash that did better than that. <laughs> but but there are people licking their licking their wounds uh, yes. all over the country today. However, last night the authorities in Beijing called to a conference call with the Wall Street banks. And, uh, secret conference calls all over the, the financial times of London this morning and on business as well. And, uh, the share price has bumped up by 10%. I, I, I got to ask you, isn't that insider trading? Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I think, um, uh, I think the central banks and the regulators are very careful when they communicate with the, with the banking counterparts, um, to talk to all of them, or at least the biggest ones, and then they would then disseminate and use them as conduits to disseminate the information out to the public. I mean, uh, and they would then probably expect those banks not to trade on the information until they had disseminated to the public. 
But as you and I know, I think uh, those Chinese walls are probably as leaky as a sieve. Um, so, you know, this sort of thing happens, but that happens everywhere in markets. Uh, you can put rules and regulations up until the blue in the face. It's not going to stop that sort of behavior. But what would stop the Chinese authorities who wanted to get the message out from just having a press conference, just having a, an open YouTube conference, talk to the world? Uh, why do they have to go and talk to the elite of the elite? I mean, these are the, the Goldman Sachs, uh, JP Morgans. This is Wall Street's. It's not like they need more money. No, you know, it's, uh, that's, uh, that's how uh, regulators deal with these sort of issues. They are not, you know, they're not open to communicate freely with everyone. They think there's certain channels you follow. And the bigger banks um, get preference or get uh, preferential access to that discussion table. Whether it helps them or not, at the end of the day, I, I'm not sure. If you look at the returns from owning bank stocks like Goldman Sachs over the past 10 years, it's been pretty poor. Um, so they might get this sort of information on a preferential basis, but it sure hasn't helped the shareholders. Well, it, it certainly helped them today because the share prices are up by 10%. Okay, it's only recouped one-third of the losses that we've seen in the past week. But now, as a NASPAS shareholder, and there's still many of them, not everybody is as is, is yet, or rather lots of them are still drinking the Kool-Aid. Do you stick with it, uh, or are there, are there things they're just not seeing? So I, I think my premise for not owning NASPAS or process process or 10 cents for that matter historically has been basically has rested on two legs the one leg being um clear overvaluation very popular stock very highly priced so that makes a decision to not invest in it on a based on valuation it's fairly simple however what added to that conviction was the fact that you owned it through this variable interest entity which you now spoken about uh, which creates an existential risk. In other words, it creates the risk that, that the value of your investment could be zero. I wouldn't describe a high probability to that, but there is a non-zero probability that your investment could be worth zero if the Chinese authorities for some reason say, we're chopping these variable interest entities are, are illegal, we're chopping them off and the capital sits in China and whatever you thought you owned is worth nothing. That is a clear possibility a non-trivial possibility. So even if it's a fantastic business available very cheaply, if you have a possibility of something going to zero, then you cannot invest a lot of money into such a business. So now what's happened over the past few days, the valuations have come down to levels where at least, you know, they start looking like fair value and even attractive. But that existential risk has not gone away, despite you know, all the press conferences they hold with the banks, whatever, the, the regulators decide what the regulators want and what suits them. And, you know, profits for shareholders is not one of the things that enter into their calculations. Uh, so that existential risk is still there. So I think given current valuations, a small allocation to some kind of of process or 10 cent can be justified. I'm not saying should be done. I'm saying you can justify a small allocation in a portfolio context where, you know, if it goes to zero, that it doesn't wipe out your whole portfolio. Uh, what I found ridiculous is that people have 20 to 30 to 40% of their portfolio in this one entity, which has existential risk, based on the fact that it makes up such a large portion of the index. So, so you have agents investing other people's money based on an index, and they're managing their career risk, and they're taking outsized massive risk to protect their own career risk because they are just matching the index. But the index weight is so far removed from anything any rational principle would do with their own money, it borders on ridiculous. Uh, so to get back, I think the valuations have improved. Valuation, the price relative to intrinsic value calculation has improved somewhat, uh, but that existential risk is still there. So if you're inclined to invest in this sort of business, I think you can allocate a small portion of your portfolio to it at these sort of prices. That, that's, that's my current position. Pitt, what about getting to the bottom of commodities? We've seen fantastic results today from Anglo-American, uh, Anglo-Platinum earlier. Uh, this is uh, something that uh, those investors who invested in commodities will be delighted 
to to have achieved but uh, is it now too late is it uh, should they be taking profits should others be coming in is it a trading situation how are you reading it so i think there's a whole generation of um investors who were still remember being burnt by the commodity sector in 2008 9 10 11 12 uh, and don't want to touch it because they think it's a highly cyclical sector and it loses your money on balance uh, it, which is true, it is a cyclical sector, but I, but I think this, uh, the cycle for commodities is determined by supply changes. Demand for commodities is steadily increased, it grows by sort of slightly less than GDP over time. It's an inherently deflationary sector in that costs come down, uh, they mine more efficiently, and therefore the price of the commodities, uh, the demand for the commodities goes up by less than GDP. But supply is a big swing factor, and there's a long lead time to increase supply. And once you've increased supply, you can't switch it off immediately. So there's an eight to a ten year lead uh, in before you from when you say I'm going to build a new mine to when you produce the output from that mine. Uh, and then once you decide not to invest anymore, it's ten years later only when the mine supply comes back into balance. So it's the supply that causes the cycle. That's what happened in 2005 to 2010. We had a massive supply response. Mining companies expanded rapidly and aggressively into the commodity price upswing. Uh, so that by the time we had the global financial crisis and the, and, the, and the economic downswing after that, the supply was just coming on stream um, at pace, uh, which led to, and, and, and at the same time, the mining companies took on debt to expand. Not only did they spend all their free cash flow on, on expansion, they took on debt to expand as well. And so when commodity prices turned down, these guys actually faced, uh, you know, a company like Anglo-American was close to being bankrupt at that point because it had too much debt for its income stream to service. Uh, so that's what everyone remembers. Uh, and even the management of those companies. So where we are today is these companies are paying out all their free cash flows, dividends, and buying back shares. They are not expanding. They are spending the, as little money as possible into expansion in expansion activities. So the supply response is still not being activated, even though demand is in the background increasing gradually over time. So, so I think we're in a commodity bull market. I think we stay in this bull market until we see supply uh, aggressive supply responses from the commodity companies and we're not seeing that yet so if you're invested sit on your on your stocks carry on with it and if you aren't invested it's not too late to get on the train yeah but realizing also that it is a it's a cyclical sector the share prices are volatile they go up and down a lot over a short space of time but from here on out of the next five years, I think the trend will be up. And if you're not invested, I think you can pick your times when you want to increase your exposure. Uh, when there are sell-offs like there were the past month or two, they're, they're, that would be, a, you know, and it will happen in the future again. It's not going to be a straight line up. Uh, there will be opportunities to increase your uh, exposure to the sector. But I think um, my view is that we're on a commodity bull market. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour brought to you by the team at biznews.com. A real privilege to have the directors of AltVest in our virtual studio today, Rob Hersoff, Koshik Karen, and Warren Wheatley. The company called AltVest is a very exciting project, one that we at BizNews are privileged to be part of and will be moving into the future hopefully transforming the way that people invest in exponential, in the early stage of exponential companies. Warren, it's pretty much your brainchild, or you certainly have been the guy who's, who's, who's been driving this most aggressively. Where does it come from, the idea of AltVest? It's always been a, a dream of mine. Ever since spending time, you know, advising Altri Network family offices, when I saw the amount of deals that hit their desks, and the connections and, and opportunities. I had a burning desire to make those opportunities available to the ordinary public. It's a travesty that it's taken us this long to get there, but it's needed a combination of tech, some savvy, and you know, just the movements in, in capital markets to get this right. Finally, we can offer these in a fractionalized way, in bite-sized chunks to everybody. 
So suddenly a call center agent can buy a stake in a wine farm or a solar plant or a Ferrari or an Arabian stallion. You know, so we now finally have all the tools that can bring these things together to make equal access to all investment opportunities almost wherever they present themselves in the world. Eventually, we'll be offering assets across the world to ordinary people in South Africa. Rob Herstoff, you've been playing in these global investment markets for a long time. And if you have a look at the, at the big opportunities, Facebook, Google, even Tencent, the people who are given the opportunities in the first place aren't private citizens. There's a very elite group. Altvest presumably is going, to tra- is going to transform that. Absolutely. You know, when Goldman Sachs call me and say they'd like to show me something, I know that I'm probably the 10th, 50th, 100th, or a thousandth person in line. They always look after their clients first, themselves first, <laughs> and clients, and then you know everybody else thereafter. So you know it's like the the old adage. You know if somebody's showing, if you're in London and somebody's showing you the greatest deal in Hollywood or the greatest oil deal in Texas, be very careful because you know they showed it to the Hollywood crowd and the Texas crowd first. This is a great way for the man or lady on the street to be able to invest. And I had a chat to a friend recently who said that his dad basically taught him to get a job and invest in property. And that was his investment environment. But now he understands you've got to have a portfolio. You've got to be nimble. If you see a trend, you've got to be able to invest in that trend. And if it's a private company or if it's handled by a big investment bank or it's on a giant stock exchange, you don't really stand a chance. This democratizes investing. We're going to talk in a moment about how it all works and, and how people can get involved. But maybe, Koshik, from a, a media perspective, I can tell you where, where we're coming from at Biz News is we would uh, encourage our community uh, to sign up uh, through uh, – there will be a brokerage that you can sign up in, maybe uh, – express your interest. I mean, all of this is coming down the line with the official or the hard launch. This is more like a soft launch. And we'll also be telling our community that if they've got exciting businesses, that they can list them on uh, Altvest. It's, you don't have to go through all the hoops that you're required uh, on uh, more formalized exchanges. But on the other hand, you will be required to be interviewed, to to be sharing your information regularly with the community that is investing in you. So it's, it's, it's such a, 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 for us at business, it's, it's revolution. It's very much what we believe in. From your perspective, why did you get involved with Banker X? You know, Alec, as mentioned earlier, I've spent my entire career in investment banking, right? And it becomes apparent very quickly the disconnect in the level of information that you have access to relative to the man on the street. But the man on the street is the reason you have these valuations. It's the reason you have companies listed. These are the people that are the hands and hard labor of our economy, yet they aren't rewarded for it. right? And if you look at any listed company, particularly in South Africa, where you have incredibly high executive compensation, and there's a lot of people in this country who are getting paid far too much for doing far too little, right? In corporate South Africa and in government, government especially. And why we got involved is to say, listen, if we have a company that's performing well, your local store that you invest in, your local sports team, you should be able to share in the earnings, the success, and the victory of that company. You are the company, right? And I got involved as Bank Rex like Warren and Rob, to close the gap between value and receiving value as the person who creates it. So Warren, where's the uh, the filter? What filter is there going to be? Uh, Koshik has just mentioned now the local store that, uh, that, that you might go to. If, when you have a look at maybe a stallion that John Costa would have at, at Claverflay that is that could be exciting into the future. Perhaps he would be uh, wanting to list it. Where, where do you start though? And there's, there's got to be some filter because there unfortunately are lots of crooks out there as well. We have a number of processes that will help us filter. So it's a combination of, of technology. There'll, there'll be a platform that the budding entrepreneur would have to go through. And it's, it's not dissimilar to a 
credit application with the bank, but that's the starting process. It's, it's just submitting the, the core information to do a, a financial assessment. We'll then screen those and, and make a number of opportunities available to the public for open discussion. So almost a menu. Each company would have access to data rooms and the entrepreneurs would then go through a series of media processes. The filter will be made up of tech that does robust financial analysis and, and filtering. We will have an IC investment committee made up of some seasoned professionals who will help vet. But then it's going to be handed over back to the community and all the wannabe investment bankers, the wannabe chartered accountants are going to have their go at doing their own valuations. And much the way that large markets work, where information is distributed equally, we'll arrive at a price and a valuation and we hope with enough eyes on every opportunity, you know, we'll, we'll squirrel out the, the best ones. And once we've done that, people are going to be able to put cash and participate in the growth of, of those. Rob, why did you get involved? You've got enough on your plate as it is. Why Altface? <laughs> I agree with Warren and Koshik's thesis, which is simply that enough's enough. The ANC, they can't, as Koshik said, can't even run a bath. I mean, they are just patently useless in running a government, let alone a province, let alone a city, let alone an SOE. The time is we have to do everything for ourselves. And uh, this is it. This is the perfect way, as Warren said, to try and reignite the economy, make sure capital doesn't sit in treasury bonds or bank accounts, but goes into companies that deserve it and helps them grow and rebuild uh, two words that the ANC never use, economic growth. Have you ever heard an ANC person, even Cyril, say economic growth? They don't even know what it is. This is one way to do it. And I'm a big believer that focusing on small and medium-sized entrepreneurs and enterprises and providing them the capital is a way to kickstart this economy. We need to take control. We've all got, if we can afford it, private schools, private security, solar, boreholes. Why do we need a government? They're not even protecting us. This is just another step in democratizing things in the right way and promoting capitalism, the only form of, of economic philosophy that brings economic growth where everyone benefits. So to me, this is a fundamental move, and I'm honored to be involved in Altfest. I think it's going to be big, and I'd like to see it expand into the rest of Africa. Koshik, uh, last word from your side. We are extremely excited to see this launch. A lot of work has gone on behind the scenes, but you know what? This is not our platform. It's your platform. It's your platform in as much as it's ours. So we're going to build this together. We're going to refine it, and undoubtedly, we're going to make it a success together. Warren, last word? We only plan on launching formally in the third quarter, but we've all been drinking our own Kool-Aid. So today is really just a test to check if we're on the right track. If there are entrepreneurs who'd want to raise capital through this platform, we'd like to hear from you. And equally, if, if this is something that the community wants, you know, you may just want to buy NASPA shares and be subject to Chinese communist rules, but we want to hear from you. If this does interest you, let us know. Go to our website. There's a short little form to fill out and we'll then keep you in contact and, and keep you involved. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Well, it's a warm welcome to the developer of Port of Gauteng, uh, Francois Nourkia. Francois, uh, Port of Gauteng, before we go into this big story about Transnet, uh, it's on the left-hand side of the highway, just kind of up past, is it Fosslerist? Yeah, it's at the Barry Marais off-ramp at the N3. Okay, and, and what's the intention there, to, to, to put together another inland port like you have at City Deep? Um, yes, and no more large warehouses, because it's the flattest land you'll find about in Gauteng. And the flatter the land, the cheaper is the massive warehouses. So we, we're aiming at the 50,000 and larger warehouses. And with that massive slope in Durban land, we will be about 25% cheaper. But there's also a place for a rail terminal if Transnet can get their act together. But the rail terminal doesn't work. Uh, everything will then have to come by road. And we sit on the off-ramp at Barry Maria Road and uh, N3. 
I suppose even the fact that you're thinking about uh, or you're in the process of bringing a, another inland port to Gauteng tells us that things are not going well at Transnet. In the last few days, it's just uh, it, it's been unprecedented. Before we go into uh, potentially what's a ransomware attack on the computer systems, what is the balance sheet of Transnet looking like? And I'm asking you this because this is actually your game, the, the, the whole logistical area. I couldn't get it this morning on their website because, I, as I told you, I'll have a look at it uh, to get, just get the, the 100% correct figures because their website is still off. But uh, in about seven years, their balance sheet, uh, their debt has grown by more than 50% over and above inflation. Their turnover and their profit grew at inflation and their uh, debt grew at 50% more than inflation. And there's questions about, is their profit real? Because it was revaluation of assets and uh, since their last financial statements, because their financial statements come out so late, the, the one for the year end, end of March now has only come out in September. The port regulators reduced Transnet's uh, fees that they can charge on ports. So they'll have a reduced profit. If they don't revalue assets, their profits will be down. So it looks like in a 10-year period that their debt will have increased fourfold compared to their profit. Okay, the balance sheet is not good. Uh, on the other hand, they do have new management, uh, Porsche Derby being appointed there um, fairly recently. Has that made any difference? Uh, it looks like it. You know, I, I, I can't say exactly, but there, there's two things that worried me with their management. One of their, their executives was interviewed just after they got appointed. And they asked this, this guy, who's your business leader that you look up to? And his answer was Alec Irwin, the Minister of Public Enterprises. The, the moment I heard that, my stomach turned. Then they, they put out a master plan for Durban Port, end of January. And the, the guy that, or the team that put the report together talks about that they want to capture 40% or 40% of the containers in Durban is transshipped. Now, transshipped means... The container comes into Durban Harbour, gets off the ship, and then goes with a smaller ship, say, to Maputo or to Dar es Salaam or something like that. And so that figure is totally wrong. Only about 10% of the containers coming into Durban gets transshipped. What this report actually meant was containers unpacked. Because what happens, because there's no need for empty containers in Gauteng, a lot of containers get unpacked in Durban, and then the goods get put on flatbed trucks and Transnet can't compete in that market. So if you read the report in context, then you will see that's what they meant. So they put out this master plan for Durban Port, but when they deal with rail, they don't even have their terminology correct. Yeah, all of that, I mean, one, one can forgive that, because the real issue that we're looking at now is that the port is amongst the worst in the world, according to the recent rating. It's supposed to, certainly was the busiest port in Africa, and often used to be called that, but now it's frozen at the moment. Now, what the heck is going on there? Is it is it ransomware that's causing this? In other words, somebody who's gone in there, taken down the system, the computer system, and now they want to be get lots of Bitcoins before they switch it back on again. Is that what's going on? Or is, it, is there another reason to this? I can't tell you. I don't know. Uh, but what I can tell you is I, I fear for Transnet when it comes to organized crime. Port of Gauteng has got the, the railway line for 2,2 kilometers next to it. The, the night of 25th of June going on 26th of June, there was cable theft. The night of 27th of July going into the morning of 28th, so night ago, there was cable theft again. You go there to the, to the land where the Port of Gauteng is going to be developed. You see Transnet security all the time. So they are there. Now, where were they that night when that happened? I drive down to Durban every now and then. Last year, end of August, beginning of September, I drew, uh, drove back and I saw, I came across where a uh, petrol pipeline was breached. Fuel was just spewing out uh, like mad just before the engine uh, Ultra City there by Lady Smith. And I wondered what it could be. It was just before nine o'clock in the morning. When I got to Joburg, people got arrested on one of the neighboring properties of Port of Gauteng that stole crude oil out of the pipeline. And there was uh, four containers with the stuff stored on it. And one fell over. So it made a, a massive environmental spill. So I went to go and look how they cleaned up the environmental spill. And I saw how it looks like. They put a camp around it, and it's all these containers that take the contaminated soil. When I drove back to Durban, I looked there, 
and that was set up there. So it was a, a fuel spillage that happened. Now, a few things that concern me about that. I drove past there 9 o'clock in the morning. That must have happened in darkness. I don't think anybody will try and breach the pipeline in daylight. So that thing ran for hours, pump fuel out there. Now, everybody tell me it's not supposed to happen, but it happened. But now what's concerning me, Eric, when I drove down three weeks ago to Durban, I saw at least seven sites that's got these orange plastic fences around it and these uh, uh, skips with contaminated soil. So that tells me in the last few months, there's been seven breaches of that petrol pipeline. If we can get confirmation from Transnet of that, as I said, it's anecdotal. I drove on the highway. I see that. It's not anecdotal because you saw it with you saw it with your own eyes. But effectively, how, just explain that to people who, who don't really aren't that close to it. There's a pipeline that goes from Durban to Johannesburg. Jemison Park at Heidelberg first. There's some big tanks there. And from Heidelberg, it goes in various directions. The main one goes to L Road. And what you're saying is that that is being attacked by organized crime. How, how, do, how thick is, well, how are they getting to uh, into the, is a pipeline above the earth then, not, not underground? No, it's, it's underground. It's about 40 uh, centimeters wide, silver pipeline I saw when they, they laid it. And uh, somehow they, they, they found the recipe to get into this. Because I was told if you chip that pipeline open, your hand will be cut off by the pressure of the fuel coming out. And I've been told that if the, if, if the pipeline gets breached, the pressure drops, it will automatically switch off. I drove past there at 9 o'clock in the morning, and it was like a, a high-pressure water pipe that burst. And, and coming back to the cable theft, I, I didn't go out there, but the one guard reported to me 700 meters. The other one said 3.5 kilometers. But let's take it at 700. So still 700 meters of overhead cable. It's not an amateur job. It's not an equivalent. I don't know how you do it. And uh, it just seems that Transnet is... It's a soft target that their security looks away. That's what I've heard. They, they, they do in a distraction. The security goes one way, then they do this. But, but it also can't be a five-minute job. I just get the impression that they're too big and, uh, and they're a soft target and they're being uh, attacked from everywhere. Malware, petrol, cables. And they admit that the, the, the net call line is a disaster because of the, the cable theft. The, the lady that runs uh, TFR... She actually said that she thinks cable theft is going to destroy her dream of uh, revitalizing the net core line. But Francois, what's the solution to all of this? Uh, on the one hand, what's happening at the port right now appears to be very, very serious indeed. And if Transnet is unable to protect its something fairly obvious, like a, a, a fuel pipeline or cables on its railway lines, now it appears as though this ransomware attack is is for real. Uh, how does how does one defend against that? My personal opinion, and I know the ideological guys that, that believes in the SOEs are not going to like it. Transnet should be broken up into uh, at least ten or twelve different companies. Decisions sold down a line, sold to Kumba, the line from Ellis Ras to Richards Bay, one company, Northern Cape to. Uh, Kuberga, one thing. Durban Harbour, two operators. Richards Bay, two operators. That it's something that a private company owns. And it's not because I'm anti-SOEs. But the guys have got skin in the game. We got under Port of Gauteng came on the organized crime attack about five weeks ago. Where the Shack Mafia initiated a mass invasion on the land. 3,000 people came to peg stands on Port of Gauteng's rail park. I rushed up from, from Belito. I got the best security. I got to court immediately. I got the top advocate, top attorneys. We got the court order. I made 60 phone calls on that Saturday. We were under threat. I spent 12 hours a day there for two weeks preventing it happening because it's my land. And I know what it took to deal with organized crime there. Who in Transnet will, will, with no skin, no skin in the game? We'll put that effort in to stand up against organized crime. Today is Thursday, July 29th, and this is your FT News Briefing. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. 
The Federal Reserve signaled that it's moving closer to tightening its monetary policy. And what would happen if CEOs and government officials could be taken to court for harming the environment? We'll take a look. Plus, India's big tech groups are going public. But will investors pour in? For these great, buzzy tech companies, the question is at what point and if these companies will ever become profitable. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. The Federal Reserve wrapped up a two-day meeting yesterday. It kept interest rates near zero and said it would continue buying $120 billion worth of monthly assets. But the Fed also indicated it's seeing progress in the U.S. economy, and the central bank signaled it's closer to the point where it will ease the asset purchase program. The FT's Colby Smith breaks down what that progress looks like. The key thresholds are really as it relates to uh, inflation and the labor market. Over the coming months, we've seen a really substantial rise in consumer prices. Now, this has been largely isolated to sectors of the economy that were most impacted from the pandemic and areas that are uh, very sensitive to any of the reopening trends that we have seen. So this has been in sectors such as airfares or hotel prices. Used cars as well has driven a lot of the surge. Uh, So on the inflation front, um, they're seeing the type of bounce back that they had hoped to see um, with the economy growing at the pace it has. On the labor market front, we we had a really strong report uh, recently. There's been um, a little bit of a slowdown in the progress there, but Powell indicated yesterday that he expects very, very strong gains in the coming months as people return to the workforce. So, Colby, what about the spread of the Delta variant? Did the Fed factor that in? Powell made a pretty interesting point on uh, the Delta variant, which is obviously something that market participants and economists and policymakers are paying very close attention to. What he um, said was that the, the economic impact of another wave of coronavirus is not necessarily known and that, you know, the economic projections might not change so dramatically um, with the variant spread. So um, I think that does turn upside down our thinking about exactly how uh, COVID is impacting the economy. And it's something certainly to keep an eye out for in the coming months. Colby Smith is the FT's U.S. economics editor. Do we need a crime of ecocide, a crime for harming the environment? Felipe Sanz is an international lawyer, and he thinks so. He recently co-chaired a global panel that produced a legal definition of this proposed new crime. So what kind of transgressions would this law apply to? Felipe Sanz explains. The kinds of things we had in mind were acts against the environment, which cost a threshold, for example, in relation to air pollution or climate change, in relation to biodiversity or forest loss or loss of Great Barrier Reefs or that kind of situation, transboundary movements and dumping of hazardous wastes. But it has to be on a level that the whole of the international community says, hang on a second, that's not on. There is an international interest in stopping that. Sand says that a law like this could act as an effective deterrent because it would make potential eco-criminals think twice. I think that with everything in this domain, it all begins with the act of reflection. And once people start asking themselves, wow, could I be criminally responsible? They start to think differently. Ultimately, he says, it would be up to prosecutors at the International Criminal Court to decide to bring a case. But before this can even happen, a group of countries will need to propose the law as an amendment to the court statute, and 80 countries would need to approve it. So it's not going to happen tomorrow, but it need not happen in 10 years. It could happen sooner than that. It's all about political will. It's all about six or seven political leaders saying, we support this. Felipe Sands was this week's guest on the Rockman Review podcast, which comes out every Thursday. You can find a link to this week's podcast in the show notes. Global investors have been excited about India's tech startup scene lately, especially since China's massive regulatory crackdowns on tech companies. Zomato, an Indian food delivery group, launched its IPO last week, and it was a roaring success. 
It's considered a milestone for Indian equity markets. Paytm, a payment app, is expected to float later this year. Both are backed by Jack Ma's Ant Group, which had its own IPO halted by Beijing last year, forcing it to restructure. So is India's tech scene the real deal? The FT's South Asia correspondent, Stephanie Finley, joins me now to discuss this. Hey, Steph. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Um, so, Steph, tell us a little bit about the layout of the tech companies in India and this IPO boom that we're seeing. So India has dozens of unicorns now. It's the country with the highest number of unicorns behind only the U.S. and China. Zomato and Paytm represent uh, some of the biggest, but there are many others with solid fundamentals. But like the rest of the world for these great buzzy tech companies, the question is at what point and if these companies will ever become profitable Many of these companies, Zomato and Paytm included, have burned through millions in cash in the race to dominate the market, and they've yet to post a profit after being fueled by global capital. For years now, people have been waiting for this for this IPO wave. There's been these unicorns that have been growing and growing, and India has obviously has talent, obviously has entrepreneurs, but we haven't seen any exits. So Walmart had made a $16 billion acquisition of Flipkart, but other than that, we hadn't seen anything um, major. So I do think that Zomato's IPO and later Paytm's IPO kind of heralds the start of this boom. Um, so I guess... Do investors see India as the next China? Obviously, there's been this incredible regulatory crackdown from China. Um, so is this kind of a greener pasture, fertile soil, if you will, for investing in tech startups? Uh, in some sense, yes. India is a major frontier and analysts say more than ever they are seeing money coming into it as a major growth market. But there's a kind of word on caution between the India-China comparison is that despite India's population of 1.4 billion, the number of middle class internet consumers, the, the people that these tech companies are targeting, is only estimated to be 150 to 200 million maybe even less if you have a premium product. So it may not be as big as it appears at first glance. But definitely with China's crackdown on DD, investors are looking for companies to invest in where they hope to uh, have a little bit of protection from regulators. Do these IPOs do anything uh, for, you know, what does it say for India as a whole? So with these companies, I think we're seeing this whole wave of tech startups mature. And they are offering uh, something to the world. It isn't just kind of confined to the India market. So if you're looking at insurance aggregator Policy Bazaar or merchant platform Pine Labs, these are solutions to daily life that are actually leapfrogging other technologies that we have in other parts of the world. More than ever, we're sort of seeing this tech ecosystem develop and deepen. And so much money is coming in that it's to the point now where good companies aren't struggling to get funding. They're struggling to find enough staff, find enough engineers to uh, keep on growing the company. So I think it's a really exciting time for India. Stephanie Finley is our South Asia correspondent. She's based in New Delhi. Before we go, we've got an update on a Tesla co-founder and a new move that he's made. As you might know, a few years ago, J.B. Straubel used his expertise to set up a battery recycling startup called Redwood. Now, the startup just raised $700 million in a funding round. To put that into context, that's six times bigger than what Tesla, his old shop, achieved in its first six equity rounds combined. This funding round could mean big things for the battery sector. Straubel said he wants to set up a closed-loop supply chain for electric vehicles within the U.S. That includes the recycling car batteries. And there's a market for it. Only 5% of lithium-ion batteries are recycled. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Thanks for being with us this evening from the Biz News team. Uh, I'm Alec Hogg and my colleagues who've been with you on the program tonight, Nadia Swart and uh, Justin Rowe Roberts, and of course, everybody else back in the office, including our managing editor, uh, Stuart Lohman, and of course, uh, Jared Neves, 
who is always a contributor to us, as well as Claire Bardenhorst. I better stop there because I think we'll, I'll bore you to death with a, a whole team. But uh, we hope that Dudu uh, Masuku is well again next week. She's been uh, under a little bit of the weather, and uh, we will be back in your company on Monday. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.